I hope you know where you're going this morning. Uh, All of us, if we ever stop and think about it, hope that when this life is over, we are in a place where we will live with the Lord forever. Now, there's only two ways to get to a certain place. Uh, One is to know the way yourself and be sure you don't make a wrong turn somewhere. I thought I knew that once. I was at... uh, Faith Builders doing their bakery route a long time ago, and as I was driving, I was listening to a borrowed tape of PDQ Bach, some humorous thing back then, and uh, I was laughing so hard that I, uh, when I finally finished laughing, I had no idea where I was. <laughs> I uh, missed my road and went way up somewhere else and had to go back and retrace my steps. So uh, it doesn't always work that way, even when you think you know where you're going. The other way to get to some place, and this is a good method, is to follow somebody that knows where they're going. Um, That's how some of you got here this morning, probably. You weren't sure, and so you follow somebody that knew. Well, I heard of somebody following somebody one time, and they're trying to keep up with their blue minivan, and I guess for a minute or two they got out of sight, and when they finally came with inside of the blue minivan, they they kept following, and, and the van turned, and they went after them, and the van turned again, and they took them down a strange trip that they weren't quite sure was the right thing, but since they knew where they were going, they kept following. Finally, they turned into a private community, and they followed, and this person turned into a garage that was nowhere close to where these people wanted to go. They had the wrong blue minivan in, in mind, and it took them to the wrong place. Well... We have a sure word this morning, and Thomas asked Jesus, how can we get to where you're going if we don't know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'd like to take you to the verse that sort of sums up what I'd like to say this weekend in John 12, verse 26. John 12, verse 26 says, If a man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. There's a lot packed in that verse. And this verse is probably one of the most important words in the Bible, the choice, the if. If you do it this way, this is what's going to happen. In this verse, there's expectations. We expect that right choices lead to right outcomes. We believe in the law of outcomes. In this verse, there's destiny. And if we want to be where Jesus is, Here it says it very clearly. Um, This is how you're going to get there. You're going to follow. You're going to serve. And uh, in this verse is also reward. It says, if you do it this way, you will be where I am and you will be him will my father honor, it says. The disciples spent several years with Jesus. I believe by the time they were finished, they were not so concerned anymore about mansions and streets of gold and promise of beautiful things. If they could only be where Jesus was, and that would be good enough. That would be good enough. They're past thinking about glory and, and things for themselves. And I think that's where a mature believer comes to. We come to the point when the most important thing is to be accepted and recognized as belonging to Him. So this weekend, there's several messages around this concept, the calling, the life, service, and destiny of, of those that choose to serve God this way. And our goal is to make this choice and serve in the best we can. And, and there's no way I can tell you everything you need to know. And so please accept this as simply a recommendation, encouragement, a nudge in that direction. But my concern is that we keep the threshold where it belongs and keep the bar where it, where it is 
and understand the kinds of decisions that help us get inside this verse that becomes our, our text, our goal this weekend. Because some people have exercised extreme exclusivity and self-denial and purpose to remain in this verse. And it's good to us, for us to remember that. Men have, have suffered much loss to stay in this verse and to remain in it and its purpose. And I'm concerned today the bar has been lowered. We live in a, a Christian world that emphasizes an emotional response to the call of Christ instead of a practical one. Um, maybe mental assent instead of commitment. Maybe um, a pragmatic choice to stay out of hell instead of a devotion and commitment required to serve God the way he meant. And so Jesus said, if you want to be with me, you, you serve me, you follow me. Look at my life, my vision. So the first message is very basic, and we could title it, Choose You This Day. That could be the simple title of this message. Choose You This Day. And if at the end of this message you think that this sounds a little bit like a salvation message, it's probably because it's about basic things, uh, very basic things. Because I look at this verse and understand that inside this verse there's salvation. Outside of it, there isn't. It's pretty much that simple. If we want to be where he is, and go where he goes, we need to do it this way. Now someone said one time that no man can choose until he's understood that he has options. And that's an important observation. Because as we look at this verse, you have options. Uh, nobody's inside this verse by accident. Nobody is there by default. No one forces to do it. We decide to be there or not. And so I'd like to lay out this morning the logic of Christ's invitation and the great big barrier to accepting that invitation and what it is and the, the battle that goes on between these two and the danger of making halfway choices. And I grappled with this message, I'm honest with you this morning, because it seems so basic. Maybe for most of you it's needless. Maybe this decision has been passed, but... But if, if you've made this choice, I want to remind us that this is an ongoing choice, a day-by-day -day decision to remain here and continue faithfully in this calling. But there's a foundation to be laid here before we go on to other things. We'd like to try to lay that this morning. But I want to remind you this morning, first of all, of a sort of a spiritual history lesson that all of us have come through at some point, and it works differently for all of us. But it brings the point of this decision. We need to understand what the decision is. But what happens between the time of innocence and accountability and then beyond? Uh, we had a new addition to our family about eight weeks ago, and we love him dearly. But uh, one time you were there too. Now this guy has it pretty nice, this little eight-week-old we have. He uh, gets fed when he cries. He gets carried around when he whimpers, he uh, gets his clothes changed, he has no responsibilities whatsoever. Um, and there he is, he just enjoys life, I guess, just as it comes to him. And he doesn't have to lift a finger to get it. And one time you were there too. You were fed, you were diapered, you were burped, you were uh, changed, you were... Everything was handed to you very simply. And it probably didn't take any of us very long to understand that it doesn't take much of a coup or much of a smile to get all the attention I want. Uh, it doesn't take much of a cry to get all the care I want. Uh, it's just sort of how it is. And we sort of understood that we are the center of this universe. Everybody around us is there to keep us happy and make sure we have what we need, and we sort of liked it that way. Uh, we didn't call that sin either. 
We don't call that sin. We just call it innocence. There they are, and that's, that's what they know. When you were big enough to start working, uh, I don't know what your first chore was when you were little. Maybe you tried to help set the table and scatter some spoons around. Or maybe you were told to pick up that toy and put it in the toy box. And so you sort of did it. And, and you were just doing it to prove that you're big stuff and prove that you are, uh, you're copying other people. And everybody cheered, and so you felt big and smart and uh, grown up. Come to that point. But probably one of the first clashes any of us had with anyone else was when some, someone expected something of you that, that you, uh, you didn't, wasn't really convenient at that point. Um, that's happened in our home, and it probably happens in yours. You say, hey, Johnny, would you, um, would you come over here and pick up the, your toys? And they say, well, actually, I'm busy right now. Uh, you should learn pretty quick. That's not the answer you're supposed to give, but that's just the innocent response. You know, I do this when it's convenient, but I'm not going to do it now because it's not really... Doesn't really fit my schedule. I'm busy over here, um, and so that's our first realization. This isn't all about me. There's expectations here that that go beyond just what's happy at the moment, convenient. Maturity always has stages, and at first, uh, everyone cares for me, and, and we finally get to the point where we can actually take care of ourselves, and then we get to the point maybe we can help take care of other people. But that's sort of the the way it goes. But all along this way that we all grew up through. There's this awakening conflict, this change from thinking, here I am and everything is about me, to thinking that, uh, well, my ways and my wishes are clashing with the people around me. Uh, It's my will and their will. It's my way and their way. And it happens between siblings. Uh, Where's the line on the couch that you can't cross? Uh, Where's the space my feet come and your feet can't get into? What about toy time? What about ownership and game rules and things like that? And then there's clashes with parents. You, there's expectations. There's limitations. There's certain freedoms with responsibilities. And between me and my friends, and between me and my peers, and me and my teachers, and, and everybody else that's around me in my little universe. Now, I know that personalities differ. Some of you had very little struggle with this. You probably uh, yielded easily and bent easily, and others had a huge struggle with this. Um, but probably all of us in some subtle way have this, this problem. We look for ways to get our way. We look for ways to make me look good and feel good and come out on top. And there's a foundational reason for this. And it's the great big I inside that wants it my way and, and what's best for me and what's, what's good for my feelings and my, my advancement. And that's the struggle, and these things show up. This, this thing inside has symptoms, and they come out. Uh, one of the symptoms is jealousy. When I look at someone that, that has hurt my pride or hurt my feelings or has something I don't have, it's simply that the I inside is feeling like it needs more than it does. There's slander. Anybody's attempt to, to uh, salvage a reputation or, or keep my position in the ranks by downing other people, that's just a a symptom of the uncrucified flesh on the inside that's not, not yielded. Whenever there's conflict, whenever there's conflict, there is almost always, I would say always, something of uncrucified self-life that, that is still at work. Um, Proverbs say, without pride there is no contention. Only by pride cometh contention, I believe it says. Self-promotion is a symptom. If you ever hear somebody bragging 
or drawing attention to themselves, or, or trying to dress in ways that splash and make an impression, or keeping ahead of the rest and being competitive to a fault, often it's driven by this, by something there that, that is still trying to keep a grip on his little universe and prove himself. Whenever there's blame or anger, uh, it's always an expression of this, this thing inside that, that has not yet completely been conquered. Now, all of us at some point come to what I would name a spiritual awakening. And, and this happens in many ways. It can happen through uh, someone speaking in my life. It can happen through uh, outward events or circumstances. But at its core, there is a growing realization that, that my battle is actually with God. Uh, it's, it's not just about my parents. It's not just about my brothers and sisters. It's not just about the people around me. My battle is with the sovereign Lord, my Creator. Because I'm struggling with, with the people that God decided to place there. I'm struggling with the parents that God gave me. And I'm struggling with the circumstances and things about myself and my looks and my height and my, my wealth and my lack of it. And, and the circumstances God has allowed, I'm, I'm battling against that. Uh, God asked for submission and obedience. And all this time, I'm proving my unwillingness to do it. God shows me a moral standard and the great big I inside simply says, I wish I could live without it. I'd rather not have that. Um, God is asking me for a God-first relationship and all this time I've been a me-first person and that's simply an understanding of the battle that begins to go on. We realize this. And so the self in me is, is there to resist everything that God asks for and, and it shows up in many ways. And the spiritual awakening finally comes when I realize my battle actually is with, with Him and what He stands for. That's where the battle lies. I'd like to suggest this morning that age doesn't cure that. Uh, we see little children growing up and, and being molded and changed. And here you are sitting here, great big mature adults and, and very uh, mature people on this bench. But age and experience can moderate but it can never change this reality. It finds subtle ways to find expression. And if you have lived long like this, then you know the curse of the unbroken me inside and what that can do. For some, this battle is quickly surrendered. For others, this can rage on for years. But the longer we, we prosecute this, our war against God's sovereignty, the better acquainted we become with the curse of unbrokenness and the curse of unyieldedness. Whenever, there's a, whenever self is on the throne, it's an imposter there. It was never meant to be there. He's governed by passions, not by understanding. Driven by appetites, by self-indulgence. And the consequence of it all, the sad consequence, is that, that after all that I do in my flesh and myself, then I have to own all the dissatisfaction that comes with it. And I own that. You've read Ecclesiastes. And Solomon's lament there was, I tried all of it, and all of it was vanity. And he was left dissatisfied. And, and he could not blame this on anyone else. He couldn't say this was somebody else's fault. Because he was the king, and he tried everything, and he had the access to everything. And after all of that, he said, I'm still dissatisfied. This isn't what, what it was meant to be. 
what I wanted it to be. At the end of his life, he was not only dissatisfied, but he owned his own dissatisfaction. He had no one to blame for it but himself. That's what self will do. When self is on the throne, there's a fool in the driver's seat. Uh, not guided by experience, but driven by, by pride and by self-centeredness. Uh, rash choices and quick words always come from a fool in the driver's seat. This unbroken self hurts people around us. Sometimes the one we love the most. And myself, much to own lament and shame, it would hurt myself. So here we have this battle going on. And this is simply a civil war for the soul. It's there and the battle is raging inside of myself. Other people can see the consequences. There's stray bullets that fly out and hurt people. But the battle is on the inside. See, it's a differing view of life. My view is that I only have one life and I really need to live it and get as much out of it as I can because it's short. God's view is I have one life and the sooner I can get it under His control, the more productive and fruitful and joyful it will be. And that's the differing view of life. And until this throne is surrendered, this battle continues and continues to hurt inside. Then Jesus comes. And Jesus speaks to us and shows us our options. And he would, he would send us a very clear message here. And, and I wanted to point this out because the, the greatest barrier to you following Christ wholeheartedly is not the world, is not the devil, it's, it's the you, it's the I, it's the uncrucified self-life that would keep a person from following Christ the way he should. And Jesus comes to you and says this, you have offended my Father. He comes with, with direct understanding of our standing with the Lord. And it's important that we get that. All the angels in heaven are instant in obedience, but you aren't. Uh, all the stars and galaxies and planets are in perfect order, but you're not. All my creation gives me glory, but you don't. You get the glory for yourself. And that's sort of the crux of what he begins to show us. My, what, what, how God sees me. And my unbroken self is simply a a stain on God's good universe that He made. So we've offended God with our decisions when they're self-centered and self-pleasing. We offend God with our expectations of life when it's all about me. We offend God by, by pursuits and loves and passions that exclude God altogether. That, that leaves Him on the outside and it offends Him. He wants us to know that in that condition we're in the enemy's territory, the enemy's kingdom. And basically he offers us this. He says... I love you, but you're on the wrong side of things. And I will accept you, but you have to do something about this situation. You need to, you need to uh, reconcile your, your differences. You see, one of the premises of God's kingdom, the most foundational thing I can think of, is that all of His servants... Honor and obey Him and His Word. That's, there's obedience and respect in all of the kingdom of God. We'll compare that to what someone, I can't even remember who he was, when he wrote the Ten Commandments of Satanism, one of his primary ones was simply, do as thou wilt. That is the foundation of, of the uprising and the rebellion against God, is do as you want to, do as you please. That's the premise of the kingdom of darkness. We may be reconciled if we repent. 
we may, may be reconciled, if we renounce the, the uh, citizenship in this kingdom of self, if we get off this throne and crown Jesus, if we take his yoke and learn of him. That's what Jesus comes and shows us. And you know, one of the greatest problems we have with this is that we sort of like our autonomy, our independence, our ability to just make our own choices and, and go our own way and plan our own things. That's what we, we hold to highly. And I would suggest this morning, there's not one thing that's the hardest thing for you. It's, it's the whole concept that I have to now yield my, the very core of my decision-making processes and the throne of my life to another. Now, this was the colony's problem. Way back in the late 1700s when uh, the 13 colonies were about to make their stand and sign their own Declaration of Independence, one of the uh, points of this uprising was the tax on tea. You remember studying about that. And so they had this tea tax, and we thought it was new that year, but it wasn't. This thing had been in place for a long time. But the reason they revolted was not so much about this tax on this thing. It was the concept that, that England had a, the ability to tax them at all. And it was the whole idea of it. It wasn't this tax. It was the whole idea that they had a right to. And people struggle with this with God. It's not just this certain thing. It's the whole thing about uh, who's sovereign here, you or me. That's the battle in this thing. So the great struggle is is am I going to be the servant of another or am I going to be an independent, self-determining entity on my own right? I would like to suggest to you this morning that autonomy and self-determination is a fallacy and a myth when it comes to you and me. It does not work out the way we think it should. It does not work out the way people have thought it should. It's a false premise. And God knows that. It's a deceptive, deceptive position. And we see this borne out in Scripture. I'll just mention a few of them. When, when Satan came to Eve and said, if you do what I offer you, you will be like God and you will know good and evil. In other words, he was offering her that you are going to know everything that's important to know and no one will be able to teach you anything because you know it. Now that's one of the fallacies of autonomy and independence. The illusion of knowledge have you ever seen a, uh, a stubborn, I don't know what kind of term to use here, but a person that's so full of himself that he says everything and listens to nothing? Uh, we've probably met a few people like that. Doubt if there are any here today, but uh, we've probably met people like that. So that's, that's a symptom of this thing. And the day that she yielded to that temptation and chose autonomy over submission to the Lord... She lost her, her position and simply became a toy of the devil. That's what happened to, to Eve. Uh, Pharaoh had something. This was in prophecy about him in Ezekiel 29, verse 3. And I'll just read what it says here. Uh, Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, who hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Uh, have you ever seen somebody like that? All this, I own it. Uh, I've made this. Now, he said it about a river that surely predated him, but that was his attitude about what he had, what he, what he, was, what he owned. 
He was intoxicated by his greatness and his own self-worth. And he said, who's God that I should listen to him? I, look who I am here. And God simply said, I'll put a hook in your jaws, I'll drag you out from the river to the desert, and I'll show you who's sovereign here. And sovereignty of man is a fallacy. But the fallacy here is, uh, I have control of my life. I am in control of its circumstances and its outcomes. And that's a fallacy of this, of this uh, autonomous desire. Nebuchadnezzar, something very similar to what, what uh, Pharaoh said, the king spake, is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of my kingdom, uh, the kingdom of my, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? In other words, I'd, he was so full of himself, he did it by himself and for himself and for his glory and everything around him was simply a reflection of him. He was the king on the throne and this was his universe. And he didn't know it, that he was running on a short rope. And after he said this, he hit the end of it. And he was brought high to low very quickly. And he was left there as an animal eating grass in the field shortly after saying this. And the fallacy of autonomy is that there is no independence from God. This disease of self-determination and is, uh, is written all the way from the garden to the end. Uh, it's found in the Antichrist. I don't know what you read into Second Thessalonians 2.4. Some people feel this, this is a picture of who he will be, but uh, whoever this man is who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he has God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that's another picture of this autonomy here. There's no higher law, there's no higher wisdom than myself. But this... This myth infects our culture. It infects our cultural icons. This is all around us. It's written into humanism. It's written into the very core of, of, uh, of our humanistic society. Written to their songs. Written to their movies. Written to their books and stories. Uh, songs have become well known. I just there's some. Imagine this song, for instance. This is a. Uh, Imagine, I think John Lennon wrote that, if I'm not mistaken. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace, you. This is a very humanistic, man-only, no-God viewpoint of life. Now we would never say this is the image of this is my goal. This is my, uh, this is my constitution. It's not my mandate. But the whole idea that we write the story, we choose the outcomes, we decide the realities, that comes closer to us than we'd like to think sometimes. But in reality, it's all a myth. This independence from God is always short-lived and always has an unhappy ending. And whenever we try to be independent from the Lord, we simply become become in servitude to a lower master. It's never, it's never a better thing. Now, this is the choice then. We all face this choice. And Christ says, I will be your king. And a person can say, I would rather serve the great big I that, that I've enjoyed serving so long. 
And therein lies the battle. And some people struggle with different things. For some it's music. For some it's materialism. For others it's pornography. Some with pride and some with unforgiveness. Some face this for the first time and some face an ongoing battle with it. But it all comes down to the same basic struggle. Will Christ be king or will he not? That's the battle we face. Will I insist on my supremacy or will I lower my flag and bow to his? That's where the battle lies. And we choose between these options. When Joshua was leading the people to the edge of Canaan, he brought them up short, and at the very edge of the promised land, he brought them to this decision. And this is what he said there to them in Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil unto you today to serve the Lord, choose ye this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here he was, the very edge. They had come through a lot together in the last 40 years, or 50, 40. The plagues in Egypt, the crossing of the sea, the wandering in the desert. And here they were, this new generation at the edge of, of walking into this new country. And Joshua pulls them short and says, Now listen, you've been serving the Lord, but you have choices, you know. You have options, you know. Uh, always remember that you're doing what you're doing because you made a choice to do it. Don't ever think that you just did this by default. You could go back and serve the gods of Egypt. Those were the uh, gods of nostalgia, the old life back there. You could serve the gods of the Amorites where you're going in to take and dwell. These are the new ones, the, the cultural ones, the modern ones. He said, I'm making my choice and I realize I have choices. I'm going to serve the Lord because that's what's best. And often the first choice is the hardest choice. We, we struggle with the concept first of all. We can't imagine life without doing it like I've always done it. And so we struggle with that choice. But we also struggle with the ramifications of it. No, uh, the choice to serve the Lord sometimes comes hard. But uh, there's really two choices being made here whom you will serve, and how well you will do it. That's the ongoing choice of every day. I accepted the Lord myself when I was fairly young. Um, we had revivals here, and I was sitting in this audience, and I did not have the courage to stand and, and make a public confession, but I went home and did it in my bed that night. And the next night, I stood up in the corner of the balcony up there, and and I was going to make just some public recognition, but the preacher never saw me. And, and so I had to wait and do it another night. And uh, I probably barely came up above that rail. I'm not sure why he didn't see me up there. But, but, but soon after that, I began to realize that the choice to serve the king is not simply a choice of am I going to do it or not, but the ongoing choice of who's going to be in the driver's seat here? Who's going to be, be calling the shots? And who's going, is it going to be a... Uh, day by day, 24-7 relationship? Is it going to be a weekend relationship? What's this going to be like? And so maybe that's where we're at. Maybe we've come to that point. We face a choice of degree here. But whatever our choice, uh, we're choosing between these two. Is it going to be I or is it going to be him? Sometimes we face indecision in this matter. Uh, indecisiveness is a dilemma that that bothers many people. 
Uh, it bothers me. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's not hard for me to make a decision when there's something obviously better and obviously worse. But if I'm looking at two options that look pretty much the same, that's when it's hard to make a choice. Uh, I confess, I was trying to buy a toothbrush a few weeks ago. And you can spend a lot of time looking at toothbrushes. You have time to just sort of, you know, look at options and paralysis with hard choices. You've got job options. You're sitting in a restaurant looking at a menu. You, uh, you, uh, you're faced with choices that are about equal. But, but spiritual indecision is worse. When you're stuck between these two options and you're trying to decide, am I or am I not? Is it a go or isn't it? And maybe you, you pronounce the words to see what they sound like and then take them back again because, because you're not quite ready yet. Maybe you sign on the dotted line in pencil and then quickly erase it because you're still not convinced. And that's not too bad with toothbrushes, but when it comes to spiritual things, there is a problem because if you are spiritually indecisive, it's because these two options look too much on the same level yet. You haven't seen the value of one over the other yet. Uh, you haven't been convinced that, that serving the Lord is actually the better choice and that that's what you should be doing. That's what brings spiritual indecisiveness. When the benefits of the flesh weigh too highly, we're often drawn into this battle of spiritual indecisiveness. And Joshua said, choose quickly. Don't wait. Don't waffle. Because there's a problem. The longer we waffle in spiritual indecision, the, the, the quicker we tend to get led into compromise between the two. I'll just buy both of them. Uh, I'll just, you know, try to put it off or something. But people get drawn to this point. I can serve the Lord most of the time. I can serve Him and keep some of my most outstanding um, accomplishments and values and the things I love the most. I can escape hell and enjoy heaven and still get everything out of this life that I think I should. You know as well as I do that Christian culture is rife with this. There is, a, there is a meshing of flesh and gospel. There is a blending of kingdoms. There is a, a status. And people reach for status on both sides and, and uh, enjoyments on both sides. And Moses said it was better for him to suffer with the people of God for a season than, in, than enjoy the benefits of Egypt and enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. But many people today say there's really no suffering to be done. Let's just get the best of both. We can, we can do that. And so we have Christian everything. We can just put that prefix on any activity and anything out there and you can call it a Christian activity. Somebody told me this story a few weeks ago about a, an excellent tennis player who was a missionary in China. And... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Japan. And he was asked to go play tennis. And somehow he showed how good he was. And somebody then was bragging about all the medals he had won and the, the accomplishments me, he had. And this guy just told him, you know, I burned all of mine. When I came to Christ, I just burned all of that. That's the kind of commitment he decided to take to, uh, to avoid spiritual compromise and keep himself wholehearted. See, Israel worshipped many gods too. Uh, 
And sometimes I wonder in their worship of Baal and Asherah and all these other gods they had, I don't think they were always replacing Jehovah. They probably worshiped these and maybe God too, but they were replacing his exclusiveness in their devotional life. And that's what happened. And in that is when Elijah stepped up and gave them a similar challenge as, as Joshua did years before. In 1 Kings 18.21 it says, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You've got to choose. You can't go worshiping all of them. We're having an instruction class at home right now and I have two sisters in the class that were not uh, from our church or background. They're there and they want to serve the Lord. We're reading through the Upward Call. If you ever read that devotional book, it's an excellent little book. And we're sharing the example there of a, a, a wife-to-be that is giving a, a vow of commitment to her husband-to-be. And she would say something like this, I really like you, Bob, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I really like Jack, too, so in my commitment here, I'm going to just ask, would it be all right if I spend at least Friday night with Jack? Uh, all the rest of my time will be with you exclusively, but um, just that, that night a week with Jack. And the point was, what husband would accept a commitment like that? You wouldn't. What husband would do that? One of the girls in the class said, well, he probably would if he was acting the same way. And that's true. Uh, but God doesn't act that way. And the reason God can say, I want your exclusive devotion, is because He is simply asking us to be as faithful to Him as, as He is being faithful to us. There's a mutual exclusiveness in this. The same commitment He expects of us is what He's going to offer back. And that's the reason He asks us for an exclusive relationship with Him. Let's go to Luke 9 for a little bit. Luke 9, verse 23. A very simple passage, but very important to get a hold of. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whatsoever, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Now I said this before and I'll repeat it. If you would serve Christ... There's only one thing that stands in the way of that. It's not the world. It's not the devil. It's not your friends. It's not your habits. It's, it's you. It's the eye that demands service and demands uh, attention. It's the, it's the flesh, the uncrucified flesh, and the idolatry of many things. Now, when, when Jesus was on the mountain and Satan came to him to tempt him, he said, I will give you the whole world if you just one time bow and worship me. And Jesus said, I will for the whole world do nothing of the sort. And he said, I will come into my own through the cross, not through a shortcut. And that was, that was his response to what he had to offer. It was all his anyway, right? But he said, I will come into my own 
through the cross life, not through a shortcut that you're offering me. Now, Satan offers us far less. He has never offered us the whole world. He offers a pittance. He offers a fleshly fling, a fleeting taste, but not the whole world. And Jesus simply says, you take up your cross like I took up mine, and you come into your own through your self-denial the same way I did through mine, and that's how you follow me, and that's where we both get to the same place. If self-gratification and self-preservation is your underlying principle, you will lose everything. The only way to save your life is to lay down your life for Jesus. That's basically what this verse is saying. If you go to John 12, and this is where our text is taken from. Let's go back there a little bit. In John 12, we're going to read the context of that text. John 12, 23. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Now this is much the same thing here. We read our, our text in this. But he compares the choice that we face this morning to a grain of wheat that has a choice. I don't know if they, they don't have a choice, right? But if they would. The choice to remain whole and unbroken and unground and unplanted and unrotted or the choice to be planted, to go beneath the soil, receive the rain, swell up and fall apart in order that life could grow from that and fulfill the highest purpose of a seed. And there's a great contrast between those two options. If I withhold myself for myself, and if life is all about me and my house and my hobby and my truck and my, my games and my status and my image and my reputation, that is a life of death. It's like a grain of wheat on a shelf. It's forgotten, it's alone, it's useless, it's purposeless. It's no good to God or men up there on the shelf. But to give myself to the soil, if my investment is in eternal things and in people, and my delight is in God's things, if, if my resource is at His disposal, it's almost like we're slowly disintegrating and something is growing there that only God could produce. My wife has a little devotional book that that gave a beautiful example. It's almost like you go to the bank and withdraw $1,000 in quarters. And all the rest of your life, you're giving away quarters. Uh, two or three at a time, one at a time. Until you're done with it, it's all gone. You've given it up. And the consequence of a life like that brings forth much fruit here and, and ends up where Jesus is because that's the way He did it. And it, it glorifies and the, the Father. And this is basically what Jesus is saying. Whatever of my life I waste on myself is wasted forever. And whatever of my life I give back to Him is kept forever. That's basically the summary of what I see Him saying here. 
this is a life-changing decision. This has eternal consequences. This is a way to get inside that verse. If we're going to go where he goes, we're called to serve a king. We're called to cultivate a relationship with him that keeps him on top and me in submission and obedient to him. We're called to respect his limits. We're called to uh, put the lines where he puts them. We're called to live under his authority in all areas of our life. We're called to make his goals my goals. We're called to serve a king, but we're called to follow the example of a servant. That's what we're here to, here to do and learn. His humility, his self-abasement. Jesus told a parable. I want to read that parable. But what think you? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of the twain did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Two people here. The first one said, no. I don't want that kind of a life. I'm not going to be a farmer today. The second one said, yes, I will do that for you, Dad. To that point, which of them had made the best choice? Well, the second one, right? It's always good to say yes when you're asked. But not... Not only what's done on day one counts. It's not the initial choice that makes the biggest difference. Because after one, both of them had a change of heart. The one that said yes said, you know, I'd just rather not. I'm going to go off and do something else today. Maybe go fishing. The second one said, you know, I made a bad choice. I'm going to go back and undo what I first decided by doing and being obedient to him. And I don't know what's in this building this morning. All of us have come to the point of making choices. Uh, some of us have signed on the dotted line and maybe some haven't. Some of us follow through on our commitments and maybe some haven't. The time to make choices is always today and right now. That's how the ongoing choices need to be made. And the question always is, between Christ and self, between His will and mine, and who's driving here, Him, him or me? Let's take that into this weekend and make sure this underlying choice, this underlying foundation props up and gives a starting point to everything else we'd like to talk about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness to us. We would just pray that this, this biggest decision in life, both the first one and the ongoing one, could be made in a way that keeps us in the verse that says, If any man serve you, him will your father honor. And if a man serve him, we can go where you are. And so help us to remember that this week. Keep us following you closely. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.